It's time for today's episode of the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast with your host, elderly internet scam victim and America's college recruiting guru, Dan Tudor. Hey, Coach, it's Dan Tudor, and welcome to the show. Really glad that you're listening to the podcast and have joined us today. I think it's going to be a fascinating discussion that we have uh, that we have going today. You know, coaches all over the country are focused on the X's and O's of their sport and certainly of their game, and they're focused on how do we turn really good student-athletes into great performers and great student-athletes on the field, on the court, on the track, in the pool, wherever. And... And I guess what I wanted to ask you and what this today's guest is going to ask you is how much attention do you pay to their mindset? How much mental preparation are you giving them and mental training are you giving them as a student athlete? We ask these kids to perform at a very high level, but do we really pay attention to the mind? Boy, we get them in the weight room. We, we know what training sessions to have in, uh, in the off-season and leading up to um, a weekend competition that, that during the season that they might be involved in. But how much time are you spending on the mental side of it? Well, our guest today has devoted her life to pursuing that question and answering it for college coaches. And the person I'm tr- talking about and that we're going to listen to today is Dr. Amber Selking. Dr. Selking is a former Division One athlete. She played soccer at Notre Dame. Uh, and after being an athlete at a very, very high-performing uh, uh, college and program, uh, Notre Dame women's soccer, she she really started asking the questions after taking a little bit of break out of the academic field, went to work in human resources on the corporate side of life, but came back wondering, what can we do as as coaches, as consultants, to help athletes better perform on the field, but do it through stronger mental training. And that's what she devoted uh, the rest of her life to. Um, she got her master's degree, eventually her doctorate from University of Missouri. And it was really all centered around this idea of performance. And in fact, her her doctorate um, uh, thesis was entitled, When the Lights Go Out, How Do They Turn Back On? A classic grounded theory on the transition out of the National Football League. So even apart from competition, she's been fascinated with athlete mindsets and what makes them perform at a high level. And then even when that performance is over, how do they transition out of it? And what are the different mental uh, coins do they have to flip to get through that, uh, that, that process? Well, it's just a fascinating discussion. And I was able to hear her at Camp Elevate 2018 which is led by Celia Slater, um, who we've had on the show before a couple of episodes ago. Great coach, great consultant now in the field to help coaches become better, uh, just overall people and coaches and leaders within their programs. I spoke at her conference in Denver, and Dr. Selking spoke after me, and I was sticking around. and was just absolutely uh, amazed and really into all of the information that she was giving because I love this stuff. I don't know about you, Coach, but I think you know so much has been defined on the, uh, the athletic and physical side of performance, and what coaches can do to get the most out of that. And certainly, you know, you attend your chalk talk sessions at your coaches' conventions to talk about strategy. The mental side of the game is really almost the last frontier, and I think it's a fascinating one. And Dr. Selking is one of those people 
that has devoted time and effort and energy into making coaches more aware of how they can get better performance results out of their athletes. Um, she does this on a full-time basis. She consults with, with Fortune 500 companies and also athletic programs, teams, and coaches. Uh, one of her main roles in 2017 was as the mental performance coach for the University of Notre Dame football team. Her job was to be on the sidelines, be in the practice uh, area, preparing athletes for the mental side of, of this very high competitive level. And the stories she told were, again, just fascinating. The way she is able to analyze and study the mind of athletes and what they go through and what they, the, the way they learn to retrain their minds if, if it's done properly for high-performing athletic competition. So after her talk, I pulled her aside, told her I would love to interview her for our show. And uh, I'm pleased to say that even after speaking the whole day and getting ready to speak later that evening, she agreed to do it. So we sat down with Dr. Selking, and it was just a wide-ranging interview on what you as a coach can do to better prepare your athletes mentally and, and really understand what they go through mentally and, and how to coach that. Uh, the best as possible. We, that's what we talked to her about. And I'm going to jump right into the conversation the, uh, that we had with Dr. Amber Selking. I'll give her all your contact information after the interview at the end of the show. Uh, you'll want to follow her. You'll want to get her information because as I think you're going to hear, she's really on the cutting edge of some really high level things that you can be doing with your student athletes in your program. With this generation of athlete that coaches are trying to have performed better and understand better and connect with better, and they seem to be running into more and more hurdles with being able to do that. What is it about this generation of athlete that makes them unique in the way that they're motivated, in the way that they sort of approach athletics and college and everything? Well, first of all, I mean, it's an, it's an awesome generation. I think they are fascinating in how they think, how quick they pick things up, um, how much they want to know about themselves and the team and everything that they're on. And I think that, you know, sometimes we discredit how inquisitive they really are and how open to talking about themselves and, and their identity, you know, is a, as part of it. And I think that that's a large part, you know, for our athletes and, you know, particularly working with young men of really helping them explore their self-identity a little bit deeper and, and who are you and what makes you tick and when, what, what makes you upset. Right. And then, and why, you know, and, and then what are some strategies that you can use to get back into being your best, you know, and showing up poised and confident? Because at the end of the day, I mean, these kids want to be great. They, right. they want to deliver, you know, for themselves and for their coaches and for the team. Um, but a lot of times just how they think gets in the way of that. And one of the things that I've started to see with this generation is that somewhere along the way, they have equated perfection and excellence. And I think that if you ask um, any successful person, they will tell you that failure is part of the process and, and excellent to be great at what you do. I mean, you have to fail a lot and refine and get better and, and be so hungry to be great that it doesn't even phase you when you fail. And so, but again, these kids think, well, excellence means I have to be perfect. And if I'm going to be great, right. And have greatness, that means I'm perfect. And that creates a lot of stress 
and a lot of anxiety. And so we work a lot with our student athletes on just learning to think right about different situations and scenarios, whether it's a failure or a setback or um, an individual play, you know. And so we talk about excellence is about how quickly can you recover from a failure. And then we help equip them to recover more quickly. And then we praise them when they do that, you know. And so they're learning to think differently about a construct, I think, that has got distorted somewhere along the way for this generation. Okay, so as you were saying that, I was thinking back to being an athlete in the 1980s. And I I was like trying to think, did my coach ever even care how I felt about failure? I don't think they did. And so I'm wondering, is that unique to this generation? Do they need that? Or have we just gotten smarter about getting inside their heads and helping them kind of deal with that? I'm just wondering, like, what is it? It's maybe the chicken or the egg, um, you know, question. Is it, is it because of this generation and how they've been raised? And as great as they are, they need more of that hand-holding? Or have the coaches and the, the psychological community become smarter about how we're supposed to maybe – coach them mentally along through this process? Well, I think it's a combination of the two. I mean, 40 years ago, a football team didn't have strength coaches. The head football coach was a strength coach, you know? Um, And now those programs are highly evolved because it's an area of expertise. And so the whole mental frontier in general is relatively, it's not new, but it hasn't been deeply delved into, particularly in certain sports, right? And so... um, understanding that this is a next layer that we can add to performance excellence, I think is a critical component. Um, And at the same time, the social media um, and constant comparisons of oneself to another. And then also, I mean, they're under a microscope and everything they do can get blasted either on social media or on film repeatedly, you know? And so when you add all those things together, I don't think it's one or the other that really matters so much, but when you add them cumulatively together, you get a really high stress, anxiety, provocative environment, um, and 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 kids that aren't necessarily equipped to think and process those situations mentally and emotionally in ways that are one healthy. I mean, the rate of depression, anxiety, and suicide rates in our high school and college age kids is staggering. Um, and you know, crazily though, uh, brain science is starting to show us that ninety or seventy-five to ninety-eight percent of all mental and physical health issues are caused due to our thought life. Which means, right, that only two to twenty-five percent of the mental and physical health issues that we're seeing are caused due to the environment or to our genes. And so is it the environment of the program that's making them? I mean, no, majority of it is is how they're thinking about those different situations and scenarios. And so, um, you know, that's just an added layer, that mental performance training that can help help them take the accumulation of their current generation um, to to another level, to a healthier and more productive level. Right. So working with young men, male athletes at a at a at a high performing state, most coaches, most football coaches around the country, most men's basketball coaches, soccer coaches, I think one of the big complaints I hear is that it's hard to get them to open up. It's hard to get them to, you know, to sort of crack through and and reach them. And maybe even that goes into recruiting where guys, they just don't respond or I can't talk to them on the phone. And I guess the question that I have for you is for the typical coach that's coaching male athletes, recruiting male athletes, what is one of the one or two or three of the secrets to sort of 
get inside their head and be able to let them know that, hey, it's okay, you can talk to me. Well, I think, I mean, that's hard, yeah. right? Particularly when it's men to men speaking, because there is a, there's an ego involved in it. There's right. a masculinity element involved in it. And society has not constructed an environment where it's okay for young boys to talk about emotion or show emotion. Right. Um, it's a sign of weakness. I mean, growing up, you know, don't cry, suck it up, you know, that type of thing. Exactly. And so we've beat it into them to not do those things. Right. And then, we're, we, then we ask them to tell us about it. And, and unfortunately, a lot of the responses, oh, okay, that's nice. I'm on to the next question, right? And so they're like, yeah, they learn to not talk about it. Right. And so fun fact, um, there's something called male alexithymia, which says that most men, and this is a blanket statement, sure. and I pre-apologize to all our very mentally and emotionally sound and integrated men out there. Um, but male alexithymia says that men um, typically understand five emotions, sadness, happiness, frustration, fear, and anger. Um, but they'll only emote two of them or three of them, right? So they don't want to show sadness and they don't want to show fear. So that will manifest as uh, happiness, frustration, or anger, mm. right? And so, oh, really and so even if you think about the emotion of happiness, well, that's on a spectrum of joy to contentment, to elation, right. Right. you know, to happiness. And so... Or faking those things is what you're... To, to for sure. It, but he, not perfect. even having a language to know that there's a spectrum of happiness. And say, so, yeah, I'm happy. I'm fine. <laughs> you know? And so I think the language barrier for young men, particularly in, in having a language to communicate what's actually going on inside of them, um, they, they don't... Rarely do they understand what's going on inside of them. And then on top of that, it's a whole other thing to get them to to be able to communicate that. Um, and so one of the things that we do in our mental performance training is just help them understand how does your brain work? How does it affect performance? And then giving them tools and strategies to manage those things, right? So now they can say, oh, when my heart rate starts going up and I start getting anxious, like this is why, this is how it affects my performance and here's how I manage it. So now you're equipping them with words to communicate what's happening, but also tools and strategies and weapons that they can have to pull out to, to deliver still in that moment. And then they feel, if you feel competent for young men, then it drives more of a confidence. And so that's so intertwined with, with our young men. And, and if they don't feel competent in communicating, right? They're not going to feel confident and be able to engage with you on the phone. (laughs) And so we have to, you know, we got to give them some grace on that and, and know that, but then be intentional about integrating elements into our program that allow them to practice those skills, learn that language and communicate. Okay. And so those are the things that would take place once they're on your team, once they're in the program, jump back like at the beginning of the process or even before the beginning of the process at a particular school for a minute because I get coaches all the time saying, I want to know, I want to get the athlete who is mentally prepared to, to do the workload that I'm going to want him or her to do. And I, I sort of want to know who, how, how can I tell in recruiting which athletes are you know, mentally strong or which athletes are, um, are you know, just have the resilience, have that grit. And so I guess my, that poses two questions for you as the expert. Number one is there a way to tell that and search for that or identify that in recruiting? And number two, is it necessary to ne- to get that before they come into your program, or is that something that can be taught? So, kind of, I guess maybe what I'm asking is the transition between recruiting. Mm-hmm. D- 
does that work? I guess for a better way to sum up that question. Yeah. So a couple things. I think you know one of the things. So I'm a. I, I work. I. Um, work a lot in business as well and consulting in business organizations and, and recruitment and hiring and understanding people. And so one of the things that we talk a lot about are what's called behavioral-based interview questions. And so when you're out recruiting, I would encourage you to ask behavioral-based interview questions, which are something that goes like, tell me about a time when, okay. dot, 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 right? Tell me about a time when you didn't agree with your coach. How did you handle it? And so the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And so just by framing conversely to a question that would say, what would you do if you got into an argument with your head coach? Then all of a sudden they're hypothesizing and they know that they're going to create a story for you that you might want to hear. But when you say, tell me about a time when, their mind immediately goes to collecting a story that actually happened. And you get a really interesting look at how they approach that. Did they, did they just avoid it? I just, I just dealt with it and moved on. Right. And maybe that was okay. Or, and then you follow up. Well, how did that make you feel? How was your relationship with your coach after that experience then? I wrote him off. Or, right. you know what? I figured he had my best interest in mind, so I moved on. That tells you a lot about a kid that you're getting. Um, Even asking coaches or whoever you go through that recruiting process, hey, tell me about a time when, um, you know, he or she was injured. And how did they handle that experience? Some kids, you know, oh, they, you know, it took them a while to get into the training room and blah, 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 blah. Others, it's like, you know, he was in the training room every single day before school, before practice, was on the sideline at practice, really engaged still, even though he was out there on crutches, you know, and that tells you something about a kid. And so I would really encourage those behavioral based questions when you're going through that inner, that recruiting process with either the student athlete or the coaches or whomever else you speak to, right. you know, in that. Um, one of the biggest challenges that we see in you know the transition from high school to college at any you know level and in any sport is just the expectation that was created in their own minds and the reality of that experience once they get there and that gap and that disconnect is where a lot of angst and frustration happens and so, so can you give an example of that like a like that expectation versus the reality like when they show up what what well, have you seen? So we'll look at two ends of two sides okay. of this. One is, you know, coach loved me and he I mean, this is why like being over the top in recruiting is actually like can be harmful to right. you That's unless where I was going with that. Yeah, yeah, unless you have like ten deep in every position, you know, then it's like, well, by the time he gets to be a senior, he's hopefully gonna figure it out. And if you got right. the personnel to do that, awesome. Yeah. Uh, but if not, then you know, you need you need players to perform more quickly. And so being real in your recruiting process and the demands that they're going to be under um, and genuine in your approach is huge to help calibrate their expectations when they come into your program. Um, On the flip side of that, kids have their own dramatized, fantasized visions of what college is. I mean, I remember when I was getting recruited, you know, I thought like, oh, college, so many friends and like fun and hard work and soccer and awesome workouts in the weight room. And it's just, you know, but then you get to college and it's like, it's awesome workouts in the weight room, but they're really, really early and you're in South Bend, Indiana. So it's real cold, you know, you know, and so, um, 
sometimes not on the coach's fault, but kids don't know anything about college except what they see on TV and what they hear from their buddies. And so they have to learn, you know, really what is, what is college? And, you know, some of our, some, some people go to college thinking like parties, girls, this is going to be awesome. And then maybe it's not like that for them. And they think is something wrong with me? You know, why isn't it happening that this way? Should I be involved in that? I don't really want to be involved in all of that, but I feel like I'm supposed to be, you know, that's my expectations of what I'm supposed to be as a college athlete. And so even just helping them realize, listen, you don't have to engage in those behaviors. Here's how it affects your performance. You know, hollering at six girls is probably going to create a level of anxiety for you very soon. And so, you know, what's the game plan? How can we, how can we help you understand? Um, And one of the ways that we do that is we ask our players to, to write a legacy plaque. You know, when you leave here in four years, what do you want people to say about you? Because right now, you're at, a, you're at a chance where you get four years to build this thing. And you have to understand that if you want to be seen as, as a hard worker, as committed to the team, as, as someone that people on campus looked up to and that the media respected and all of these things, then you have to understand that every decision you make from now until the day you graduate is either leading you into that legacy or leading you away from it. And that doesn't mean that you can't make a mistake, but it means that overwhelmingly, you know, having that vision and planning that vision in in young people's minds early is a really healthy thing to do. And then you can always have that to go back to. You know, listen, this is very outside of what I know you to be or or who I know you want to become. What's happening? Yeah. You know? So really quick, going back to the language, um, what I found, I just want to see maybe there is a reason for this observation, it seems like in recruiting, it's much easier for a coach to ask a what I would to maybe label as a negative question as opposed to a positive one. So, for instance, a positive one might sound like, so what are you looking for in a college coach? And they'll recite the things that they're supposed to say and everything. They're all, it, it's always the same. Versus, hey, give me two or three times where – you know, two or three aspects or personality traits in a coach you know don't work well for you. Why is it easier, to the extent, to the extent that you agree with that, um, why does that work better? Why does it sometimes work better to get kids to talk about what didn't go right, what went wrong, as opposed to here's what I want? Because sometimes it, it seems like it's hard for them to verbalize what they want, but yet they know what they don't want mm-hmm. at that age. Well, they're very conditioned in practice to be told what they're doing wrong Mm -hmm. and to look for the negative things versus looking for the positive things. And so, you know, coaches rarely praise enough in terms of what they're doing well. And so they, they learn very on to look for the negative. And so we do a lot of work with our student athletes on just training their brain and their mind to see the right things, you know, so that they can more easily see what's positive. And even if a coach is communicating in a way that is is difficult for you, how can we reframe that and think about that in a way that's positive and productive for you? So I think it's easier just because as athletes, we're used to coaches hammering us for all the things we're not doing well in in general. Right. Okay, so in recruiting too, and uh, one of the things we always talk about is the influence of parents and the fact that this generation – what the parents say and what their opinion is, it actually counts for way more than it did in my generation and for the coaches that are recruiting, probably in their generations too. So I'm wondering the principles and things that you talk about 
and you know, basically observing in the recruits in this generation, how much of that or what out of that applies to parents? So for a coach recruiting, how kind of getting inside the head of parents, knowing that they there's something in it for them, for their son, you know, to have a Division One football opportunity, uh, and they're at that level of a Notre Dame. I'm just wondering, how does that, like, the psychology with parents, you know, tied into what the athlete wants? Um, I'm just wondering, like, what your thoughts on it or any study or how do you approach it with, with Notre Dame? Um, so I don't do a ton in this space. Okay. I'll preface that. So I don't, okay. I don't want to put this in context of my work with Notre Dame. Um, but I think that just working with student athletes in general, um, you can tell a lot about a kid based on who's doing more talking, the, the kid or the parent. Um, and, and it's also an indicator of their ability to communicate those things in the future. The, the student athlete's ability to communicate those things because if they don't have language again to communicate these things when things go wrong they're going to struggle to communicate with you that something is wrong and that is one of the things that we've found really help effective transitions and get guys um, or, or it, women performing their best quicker is being able to recognize and communicate hey I, I need this I and and not in a, an entitlement kind of way but in a I recognize something's wrong and I feel comfortable um, figuring out how I get support for it, right? I'm struggling with calculus. I need to communicate that early in the semester versus right before finals, right? Um, And so the amount of communicating that the kid versus the parent does, when I have parents call me asking to work with their student athlete on -on one-on-one mental performance work, um, I ask if you, I, I asked the student to reach out to me to set the meeting up and they're like, no, 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 we're good. Like he wants to do it. We want to get this set up and rolling. And I'll say, listen, I appreciate that, but here's the reality. We're going to waste your money and my time if he or she is not involved and right. in, in actually chooses to make this decision. So what I want to happen, and, and I, I mean, I just believe that part of my role is to equip these kids for life after sport, sure. and I refuse to engage with a kid if, if they haven't made that choice. And that's, I mean, it's what we call a balanced stance in sales, right? I want your business. I don't need your business. Right. Um, because, again, it's not effective. It, I can't make this kid think a certain way. He has to ch- choose to think the right things at the right times. And so, um, you know, having them either sending the email or making the phone call to set the initial meeting up, those are things that, that I try to facilitate on my end. But sure. again, that's very different than how right. the re- actual recruiting process is set up. Right. So when you, when you really started to get into defining this whole level of analyzing athlete performance from the mental aspect and kind of what were the things that their minds could control and change and manage emotions, especially during competition, as you really started to dig into the science and develop it, what were two or three of the most surprising things that you found? Because, I mean, you're a D1 athlete, and so you maybe went through that career not understanding why you felt a certain way uh, or why your teammates acted a certain way. But now as you get into the science and more like on the study side, what were the things that surprised you or jumped out as like the things that just were maybe you were excited to tell coaches about that maybe, hey, this is going to be an aha moment for them? So a couple things. I think one of the things, so my dissertation was on the transition out of the NFL. And so I interviewed former players on on that experience and developed a, a three-model theory on what happens during that mentally and emotionally, and then how did they actually go about um, 
navigating that transition. And so one of the things that came out early on and how did they navigate that was expanding their coping strategies. And so I, I feel fortunate to have grown up in a family um, that helped prepare me for coping with stress and failure um, through through multiple ways, right? Through talking to my mom or dad, right? Through journaling different things, through working out, right? Through, um, you, you know, di- just different b- through breathing, right? Focusing on the right things and not focusing on the ne- on the negative stuff, but really directing my attention to things I could control, right? That's a coping strategy. And I took those things for granted, I think, because when I went to grad school for my master's and my PhD, I'm learning this stuff and I'm like, oh my God, we can teach this stuff? Like confidence? We teach confidence? Like, what do you mean you teach it? You step up, you walk on the field and you freaking win, you know? And if you don't, you, re- you work harder to go back and win the next time, right? But you certainly don't walk out there not confident, like regardless of what just happened. And when I, when I, so many athletes do uh, absolutely, even though they have the facade inside, they're just torn up and absolutely. And so that leads right into the identity piece, you know, so coping strategies, having an understanding of who you are outside of your sport. We talk a lot about the man under the Jersey, the woman under the Jersey, who is he or she, um, and, and helping them, um, attach those things to their performance identity, you know, and learning more about how they can make them a better athlete, but also how that translates to life outside of the sport. Because here's the thing, if an athlete thinks that their identity is their sport, that means that every time they succeed, that means I am a success. And every time they fail, that screams, I am a failure. So they go out there playing in fear of failure because if they fail, they're a failure, right? right? And when they can understand that, okay, I failed today as an athlete, um, but I am still X, Y, and Z as a man, right? right? right. Then we can attack performance, right? We can drive that. Um, and so, so the coping strategies, the identity development, and I think confidence was just another one for me because I didn't struggle with that. And, uh, <laughs> and I realized that we could like teach it you know, and, and I think help people understand that element. And then the final piece is just mindsets, right? So people think that thoughts are just these ephemeral things that float around in our head that don't matter. Mm -hmm. And the reality of it is that as we repeat a thought over and over and over again, it actually forms protein patterns and webs into our brain. So it literally changes the form and function of our brain. And so a lot of our kids today have so many negative, depressed, anxious, fearful, um, uncertain thought patterns built into their brain that it's affecting how they show up every day. And so the beautiful thing is that the brain is like a muscle. Mm -hmm. The parts of it that we use grow, the parts of it that we don't use get smaller. And so if we've got kids that have very negative mindsets by helping them identify those and then replace them with more optimistic, productive, healthy mindsets, we can actually break the negative one down and build up the positive, more productive, stronger mindset. And so that's something that's been powerful. So um, on that note, the kid that says, but yeah, I just, I can't, that's just the way I think. You're saying, no, there is a way to change it, even though so it's just through exercises and through like give us at Camp Elevate in your talk. One, you walked through a couple of those exercises. I don't want you to go through each one, but like give us an example of something that a coach who's listening to this, who has an athlete that good athlete, the raw materials are there, but mentally he or she just has a you know very very uh, they, they struggle with the confidence, they struggle with the depression or the you know the failure side of it and. 
I'm just wondering, like, what is the, like an exercise? Yeah. So one of the things we all of our guys do is we'll get those big fat rubber bands and we'll have them identify what is, what is a negative thought that you find, you think you repeat in your head. We all have them. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what's that one that keeps chirping at you? And then, and then what is, what do you want to think instead, you know, and write those down outside of the moment where you're, you know, where it's already, you're already spiraling down, identify what you want to say instead, and then write that statement and call them power one. It can be a power statement right on that fat rubber band. And every time you look down and you catch yourself thinking that thought, snap the rubber band on your wrist, Mm -hmm. right? We're athletes, physicality. Sometimes we need some physical actually triggers, right? To slap your mind back into focus and then repeat the, the, the power statement that you have written on that band until you can get yourself back into it. Now that's right. I'm I'm not thinking that. I mean, it's a choice and, and you, it's just like you don't walk into the gym one day and walk out swole for the whole season. You know, we've got to condition our brains like we condition our bodies. And that actually can help sort of rewire the brain through those proteins that you were talking about. Okay. A couple more questions. Two or three mistakes that you see college coaches making with this whole genre of training, what are the things that they do wrong? They inherit an athlete, they recruit an athlete, they have them in their program, they're not doing anything close to what you're describing Notre Dame football doing and in your work. What are the the most common mistakes that coaches make when it comes to dealing with this whole topic with their athletes? I mean, we'll just pick something simple and little. Um, You know, uh, don't cross your feet over. Okay. You think, okay, well, I just told him what to do, right? Well, the brain actually thinks in images. And so we don't have an image for don't, but we have a very clear image of what it looks like to cross our feet over, you know, on the back pedal or on the side step or whatever it is you're doing. And, uh, and so just reframing our communication to the affirmative. Hey, I said, drop your hips and drive off your left foot. Right. Versus don't cross your feet over. So now the athlete is seen in their mind rightly. And it's just these little, little things in our communication that that can help them figure out what exactly we're asking them to do. Okay. Um, And so that would be more like on a training side, but on the sort of athlete personal development side of it, again, taking that athlete who who stresses out um, great in practice, but they get up to the plate or they're on a penalty kick and there's that, you know, the choke that happens. How does a coach, you described in your talk about the coach yelling. That's the immediate response is, you know, come on. Right. What should he or she do instead? Well, you know, our thoughts matter because they affect, you know, our, our emotional response, our physiological responses. And so saying things that you actually want your athlete to be thinking in the moment versus like chewing them out for doing something and then be like, get back in there. Right. And now you're expecting them to go do what you just said. But now they're thinking about why they suck so bad uh, because you just told them that they did. But clearly they didn't hear that part. They just heard exactly what you wanted them to actually go do. Um, and so just being mindful of how we're communicating on the sideline and our emotion, you're, you as a coach, me as a coach, our emotional control and our communication styles, our, health, our kids are going to mirror that when we step out there. So how do we want them to be? And just be very mindful of our communication and our body language in that. Got it. Okay, so last question. When it comes to uh, athletes receiving this information, athletes that have a coach that starts doing this, um, what are the biggest changes that your, well, that your client sees? Or if with Notre Dame, I'll just use that as the example. Uh, but just in general, what like what things would a coach who starts to do this or to starts take this starts taking this part of their job seriously? In you know the physical development, we got that down, but now there's that mental development and the confidence building. 
what are the things that they're going to see first? Like what are the signs that they're headed in the right direction with a particular athlete that there are indicators like, okay, hey, he did it or she did that. Um, any common things that you start to see once you really pay attention to this as a coach? Body language, for one, starts to shift. Um, them looking you in the eye when you're communicating and acknowledging, yeah, you're right, coach, I got that. I'll address that on the next play. I mean, that's been huge, just being able to see that. Um, and and just a common language, like when you can actually communicate in the moment when things go wrong and the player's not walking away from you and you're not yelling at his back, you know, but there's but there's actually common language there. That's a, That's a really good sign. <laughs> So, Coach, honestly, now that you've heard that, you understand why I was so excited to share her information with you. And I probably could have sat and talked to Dr. Selking for another hour because there was a lot that we didn't get to get into that we just didn't have time for. But it's a good introduction to her. If you want more information on her, you can go to selkingperformance.com, S-E-L-K-I-N-G, performance.com. It has all her information there, all the ways to contact her, all the services that she offers, and just all of the things that uh, that she has done for teams and can do for teams. You can also find her on Twitter. And uh, just a, a great person, a great resource as you, if, if you have the desire to help train your athletes on the mental side of the game, um, I cannot recommend her enough. And obviously, uh, if the coaching staff at the University of Notre Dame football program trusts her to be on the sidelines and, and helping to, to train and prepare their athletes for competition. And the year, by the way, that she was uh, at the school, they had a huge, huge improvement in performance. And Coach Brian Kelly attributes a lot of that to the work that she did. Uh, it's good enough for them. It's good enough for you, Coach. So really recommend her information. Was thrilled that she was able to sit down with us. And it's a great way to kind of start this time of the year, which is a lot of for coaches reevaluating the way that you do things and the different approaches that you need to take. So maybe this hit at the right time. So Coach, that's going to do it for today. We really appreciate you listening. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and tell your friends about the podcast. Because as we always say, the more voices that we have, the more community that we have on this, the better the sharing of information is going to be, and it's going to just continue to grow. So appreciate you always listening, Coach. Have a great week out there recruiting, and we'll see you next time on the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast. days that fly to thee we sing with our glasses raised on high let's drink a toast as each of us recalls ivy covered professors in ivy covered halls turn on the spigot pour the beer and swig it and Gaudiamusi get a tour. Here's two parties we tossed to the games that we lost. We shall claim that we won them someday. To the girls, young and sweet, to the spacious back seat of our roommates, beat up Chevrolet. 
To the beer and benzedrine, to the way that the dean tried so hard to be pals with us all. To excuses we fibbed, to the papers we cribbed, from the genius who lived down the hall. To the tables down at Maury's, wherever that may be. Let us drink a toast to all we love the best. We will sleep through all the lectures and cheat on the exams. And we'll pass and be forgotten with the rest. Oh, soon we'll be out amid the cold world's strife. Soon we'll be sliding down the razor blade of life. Ooh. But as we go our sordid separate ways, we shall ne'er forget thee. Thou golden college days. Hearts full of youth, hearts full of truth, six parts gin to one part vermouth. <laughs>